Hello everyone. Good evening. Good day. Welcome to the 59th episode of Ask Abhijit. I hope you are all doing very well. So as you know, today is a session in which I will answer questions from the comments. It's not a live chat question, but it's live, of course. So you have, you all have uh, asked several hundred very interesting questions in the comments, and I have picked, pulled out a bunch of those. Emma, and I'm going to be answering those today. But let me first see who all is here today tonight with us. So let's see who all is there. I can see Deepak Kumar, Avinash Kumar, Abhinav Mishra, Pratyush, Iron Man, Chaitu, Ishwar Roshan, Disha, Aditya, Dhruv, Chiching, Dungar Singh Chauhan, Pratyush, Kalyan Karthik, Vishal, Kingster Gaming, Karthik, Srinivas, Sampriti, Goswami, Smriti, Yash, Pratishwar, Books Lover, Adrinath, Eren, Om Tanushri, Kanishk Aditya, James Cooper, Omkar Patil, Navojyoti, Kamlesh, and lots, lots, lots of other people. Very nice to see you all. Thank you for being here. And let us get into the questions, shall we? So let's start with the first question. What's the first question? Okay, this is by Great Me. Indus Valley food habits were okay. The question is, what were the Indus Valley civilizations' food habits like? Was it pre- predominantly rice-based or wheat-based? Did they used to eat rotis like we do today? Good question. So, what we have found is that uh, the uh, primary cereal that was used in this era of our civilization was, I think, it was millet. Millet is called bajra in Hindi. So there used to be this bajra cultivation. There's also evidence of rice cultivation that is as old as the rice cultivation that has been found in China. So there was rice, there was millet or bajra. And there were other cereals too, I think. But uh, And I'm sure there was wheat as well. Uh, so there is also evidence of wheat cultivation, but it's not as old as the evidence for, right, uh, for rice or millet. So there were multiple grains that were being used in this uh, in this phase of our civilization but if, if you look at the primary grain cereal i think it was the millet the bajra and uh, and they have also found uh, okay we don't know whether they used to eat rotis like uh, we do today 
because rotis are you know flat and very thin and they don't you know you can't preserve them over several thousand years and therefore we don't have evidence of whether they used to eat uh, our ancestors used to eat rotis or not at the time what we have found is evidence of laddus these are balls of uh, multiple grain grains so it's a multi grain ball that they have found they have, in one of the regions they in one of the archaeological sites they found uh, remnants of these laddus that had been i think kind of fossilized in some way not really fossilized but they they somehow got preserved and the analysis analysis was done and it it was found that there are multiple grains in that in those laddus and there could be other ingredients like sugar ghee etc also which uh, i'm not very sure about but multiple grains were present and there is evidence of uh, of dairy products being used in this uh, in this time time frame as well as there is evidence i mean i think one of the oldest dishes that they have been able to reconstruct was found from the residue of a of, of an ancient pot in which they found that uh, somebody had cooked a mixture of a uh, mixture of ginger and eggplant brinjal so yeah we we can actually reconstruct some of these things so that's the kind of diet there was there i'm sure there was meat consumption too in some parts and, uh, and all that some people have claimed that there was a consumption of cattle but that is very flimsy and spurious kind of evidence you know but i'm sure there was consumption of meat as well at least among some people so that's the kind of food habits we had in the so called indus valley civilization which is one of the phases of our civilization indian civilization so good question to start off with let's see the second question sanchit asks did bhaskaracharya discover the concept of gravity or was it isaac newton see uh, bhaskaracharya did uh, write about gravity he called it gurutvakarshan and the concept was very clear that uh, you know the, the concept of gravity that we are familiar with was known to him and he was not the first indian or the first person to uh, to to discuss or write about uh, gravitation i think the shatapata brahmana which is an ancient vedic text it is one of the commentaries on the white yajur veda this text also uh, speaks about gravity and the and the attractive force that exists between uh, massive bodies massive objects or with between objects with mass so the concept was known to indians so you cannot credit isaac newton for discovering the concept of gravity but when it comes to the formulation of gravity as an inverse square law isaac newton was the first person to do that to create to uh, give us the mathematical representation uh, of the gravitational force and potential so that is something isaac newton did but the uh, law of gravitation the the concept of gravity was very well known to ancient indians and when we talk about the shatapata brahmana people say it's about 400 500 bce but that is absolute nonsense because this text references the drying up of the saraswati river which happened around 1900 or 1500 bce at least it's when the drying up of the river was complete but the drying process took a very long time maybe several thousand years so it's clear that the shatpat brahmana goes back at least a uh, minimum 4000 years before today so that's how long we have known about the concept of gravity and there's lot that uh, there's a lot of texts that we have lost of course 
but as far as we know isaac newton is the first person who gave us the inverse square law of gravity the mathematical formulation which came to him in a flat of in a flash of inspiration apparently when an apple fell fall fell onto his head so bhaskaracharya was one in a long line of indian scientists who was aware about gravity bhaskaracharya was of course uh, one of the great ancient indian scientists so that's the answer okay the warrior says as an aspiring researcher in physics how shall i start my career in india because next year i'll be joining undergraduate courses oh uh, well you have to get yourself a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in whatever uh, specialization of physics you are interested in and then you go on to have a phd that's how you do research that's the conventional way of doing research unfortunately in india the academic scene is not very good i mean do you hear of any real research being done in, in india in the field of physics and uh, you don't even need labs to do theoretical physics research right all you need is your brain a pencil and a pen and paper but you don't see any real research happening in this country because well the academic system unfortunately is such that it promotes mediocre minds and it destroys talented people so if you really want to do research in physics i will give you the right advice i'll say get out of this country go abroad where actual research happens and then when you are an established researcher and maybe 10 20 years down the line when india is a better place to do research in then you can come back and contribute to the country but if you want to establish yourself as a researcher i think the best way is to first get yourself a bachelor's degree the, the so called undergraduate degree then a masters degree and then you should go for a phd so that is the conventional way of doing it of course you can also do some other work and you can keep doing research in your free time that also works so for that you don't need any degrees so that is the course of action there's a couple of courses of action you could take unfortunately there is no real research happening in this country all the academicians they are glorified teachers that's all they do and that too they do very poorly i'm not saying they are all like this there are a few gems here and there of course but they are in a very small minority the average academician the average professor is <laughs> well i don't have any kind term to use for them so I'll, you 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 get what i mean right so that's the deal right how to become a good mathematician is what karan nalavat asks so ask yourself how do you become a good musician let's say you're starting from scratch you want to become you know become a good guitar player how do you do that you do it through practice and dedication how do you become a good sports person practice dedication hard work how do you become a good cook chef practice dedication hard work you need to be interested in that you need to be passionate about that similarly mathematics is a skill one acquires uh, it is not just a skill but problem solving problems etc as you go as you advance in your mathematical career is a skill that you need to learn through lot of repetition through lot of problem solving exercises so to become a good mathematician you start with the very fundamentals of mathematics addition subtraction multiplication division fractions and then you progress further and further up once you have a if you have a strong foundation mathematics is the easiest thing in the world if mathematics is something everyone is scared of but it's actually the easiest thing in the world to do if your foundations are right unfortunately our academic system uh, ensures that our foundations are terrible 
and that's why we can't progress further in mathematics when it comes to algebra trigonometry geometry calculus and so on because it sounds very complicated but that's the right way to approach mathematics start with the very fundamentals very basics spend your time mastering those and then slowly progress further and uh, it will all depend on how quickly you're able to pick up and uh, absorb and retain concepts and of course you will need a lot of practice hard work dedication just like any other skill so that's how you become a good mathematician you need some uh, you need uh, books which give you lots of practice in solving problems and then you need to be uh, able to retain new concepts and just progress that's how you do it okay kushagra says one of the main reasons for people converting to christianity is that the missionaries provide free education how can we develop a system where children from not privileged class can get the education in a dharmic way well actually today the scene the situation is such that if you want to get admission to a missionary school you have to pay huge amounts of money unless you are a convert right it's that kind of thing so today missionary schools have become prestigious things everyone wants to send their kids to a convent school what they call what they call a convent school or a missionary school where they get this education which also brainwashes the children into uh, you know other things so initially the the uh, the mechanism they used for converting people in china and in india was to create enormous poverty in the country and then offer people the chinese you know i i i did i i showed this uh, in um, one of the previous one of the older episodes the chinese they called such converts rice christians because the christian missionaries they first of all the the europeans had created this terrible poverty in china and then the missionaries who were forced upon the country they would convert people in exchange i mean they they would offer bags of rice to to starving chinese peasants in exchange for them converting to christianity so they the chinese had a term for these people rice christians that's what the chinese used to call them and the similar techniques have been used in india as we know and uh, after the macaulayan system was imposed in india you had to go through the british western education system you had to the indian education system was was destroyed and then the most prestigious education was was the one that was found in these missionary schools convent schools whatever you call them so what is the solution to this today also it's it's going on the most prestigious schools where they teach you the most polished english etc are the convent schools missionary schools and parents they they want their kids to succeed in this country in india if you want to succeed you need to be able to speak english at a high level of competence with a certain accent only then will you be impressive in your uh, in your job interviews and all that so parents they are forced to send their kids to these uh missionary schools where kids get brainwashed into hating their culture and all that we, we know that what is the solution the solution is very simple i have spoken about this in any civilized society education and healthcare must be completely free that's the solution we are all paying taxes either directly or indirectly many of us pay income taxes in the in the country of india uh, i mean everybody is supposed to pay income tax uh, not everyone does farmers don't pay anything for instance but many of indians many of the indians pay income tax and even if people are dodging income tax or whatever whenever you buy something there is gst on it there is to be vat earlier now is gst so every time you purchase either a service or any goods you are paying tax to the government 
there are road taxes there are all kinds of building taxes god knows what stamp duty it's it's a collection mechanism right they are collecting taxes from you all of you so why are why are the people of india paying taxes to get some benefit from the government right the government is supposed to serve the nation and the people in the long and ensure the long term prosperity and security of the people so i i am of the firm opinion that in any civilized society like we had in this country in the past education and healthcare should be completely free even after the dominion status in 1947 yeah even after that for some time the the so called uh, princely states were still in existence and it is known for a fact that even after 1947 for a brief period of time in these princely states you used to get free education and free healthcare if you fell sick or something there were government of hospitals that you could go to where you would get free treatment if you were hospitalized they would even give you free food and this was available to everybody everybody every single person who was um, a citizen of that princely state and similarly for education education was always free it was always subsidized by the state the teachers etc were all given salaries and every in their livelihoods by the state by the kings and queens but after independence uh, after the dominion status of 1947 yeah after that what's happened is that they've turned education into a business they've turned healthcare into a business that's why and that's why you have the situation in this country you cannot turn education and healthcare into business right that that is just contrary to every uh, concept of civilization every ideal every principle of being a civilized society so that's what needs to happen if you if the um, i'm i'm not saying it should happen tomorrow it's not feasible to do it tomorrow india needs to first become a middle income country let's give it another 10 years once our total uh, national gdp crosses 10 12 billion uh, sorry trillion dollars then the government can certainly take up this this step in it's a vast subcontinent sized country so it will take some doing but that's what the government is for it's their job to do this and the government has succeeded so brilliantly in vaccinating over a billion people more than uh, i think more than 70 80% of indians uh, have got at least one dose of vaccination and uh, more than 30% have got the second dose as well so the government machinery can be deployed very effectively in in doing these things and similarly you can um, make uh, education and healthcare also reach the masses once india is sufficiently uh, sufficient sufficiently uh, prosperous in terms of per capita gdp so that's what needs to happen india needs to in the past i mean throughout india's civilizational history we we have always provided healthcare and education for free to everybody so that's what we need to go back to and then all these problems will go away right so that's what needs to happen hopefully someday soon okay harshit says why did the british take a great deal great amount of effort in creating the asi the archaeological survey of india and in historical research of indic texts can it be termed as their single selfless contribution to india since it helped us to explore our glorious past and debunk the debunk the myths of white supremacy or were there any hidden interests so good question harshit very good question now i would not agree that it helped us debunk explore our glorious past and debunk white supremacy the uh, let's understand the agenda 
the british had a single per- singular purpose in occupying our our uh, our country undivided india they came to india for the purpose of enriching themselves of extracting wealth out of india and turning india in india into into their uh, well into their their uh, vassal state of sorts so their singular purpose was to enrich themselves they did not come to india for the purpose of philanthropy they did not come to india to uplift indians out of poverty they created the poverty and destitution that you see even today in the country they destroyed the very fabric of indian society so then what was the need to do this to create the asi and uh, do all the historical research and find uh, try to uncover the history of india well please go to the british museum please go to western museums and you will see these museums full of priceless indian treasures the primary purpose of the asi was to find all of india's ancient historical monuments and find everything of value in these monuments and then take out all the beautiful sculptures the murtis the idols and everything else that could be uh, that would be considered in the west to be a collector's item or something that would be that would be nice and orma- ornamental and decorative in in a rich person's house so these antiques these priceless indian treasures were carted away to britain where they were either either put in museums or they made their way into people's into rich collectors collections so that was the primary purpose of the asi and it you know even after 1947 the asi has operated in the same manner there are lots of archaeological sites that technically and officially fall under the asi's protection they will not allow you to go there and take photographs they will prevent you from taking videos it is your heritage they are talking about but they will not allow you to take photographs there or take videos there because apparently i mean i don't understand the logic for it and they will charge you money if you want to enter the monument right and yet they will not take care of the monuments yes they will they they spend a lot of time they spend a lot of time developing the and and uh, restoring turkic monuments and british monuments but india's priceless heritage the pre invasion the pre occupation heritage of india is totally neglected and much of it is actively still being pilfered away and it's making its way into the west i had shown in a previous episode what's happening in rakigari and other places it has been reported many times in the indian media that the site is being looted and i have shown in on this website called vatican.com that this priceless indian heritage 5 6000 year old heritage all these various uh, items that have been stolen from indus valley and saraswati valley uh, archaeological sites it is being auctioned off online it is in the hands of western collectors so that is what the asi is still overseeing today you see you hear you you read these news reports every every other day of some priceless idol some murti being stolen from some temple which is under, under the asi's jurisdiction so the asi is very much still a colonial institution right so there was no selfless contribution to india in any way in any shape or form from the british it was all done to enrich themselves to take out everything of value from india and that's what they did so that is the reason why the british created the asi and why did they study indian texts why did they learn sanskrit they learned sanskrit so that they could read 
temple records india's temples uh, they have been receiving donation for donations from devotees from pilgrims from kings from queens even from foreign kings and queens for thousands of years india's temples were fabulously wealthy today they are all empty where did the money go and uh, and i'm i'm so glad that the shri ananta padmanabha swami temple in kerala shri padmanabha swami temple in kerala was able to escape the british gaze it contains the at least at least minimum 1 trillion dollars worth of treasure in today's money minimum i think it's like several times more and it's clear that this this uh, has been donated over several thousand years right so that's the reason why the british wanted to learn sanskrit sanskrit and uh, read our ancient texts so that they could figure out which temple contains how much treasure right instead of going and examining everything just get the books and study it and then then decide which temple to loot so that's what happened most of the temples that survived the turkic occupation of india were in southern india most of them are empty of their treasures today right and people will construe this in a in a different way that you know the temples were hoarding india's wealth the this is brahminical oppression the brahmins who control the temple were hoarding india's wealth and that's why india was so poor and the temples were so rich such utter nonsense all this wealth was donated by the people of india india was the most prosperous society on the surface of the planet and indians the temples were cultural centers they were centers of culture civilization and they were centers of education and people donated money and wealth and everything else to the temples in order to maintain the upkeep of the temples and of course there was a surplus donation which the temples could not use because people were devout and they wanted to support the temples and they just as a as a consequence they just stored everything within the temple and that's why the temples were so fabulously rich because india was the richest civilization on earth so that's why the british uh learned sanskrit and tried to decipher and read our ancient texts so that they could figure out everywhere there was treasure in the country that's the only reason okay why didn't the british invade tibet when they already had presence across india and why did the soviet union not do that when they had presence across asia also is if there is a power in tibet which secured their sovereignty from these two big empires then why and how did china succeed in invading tibet okay um, it's a convoluted question but good question good question so let's do a cost benefit analysis of a british invasion of tibet let's say you're british let's say you are the person in charge of uh, the occupation the the illegal occupation of india the british raj okay why would you invade tibet what will you gain from it cost benefit analysis tibet is a vast plateau it's an enormous region right to reach tibet you have to cross the himalayas and you have to then survive in this harsh environment it's it's a barren place it's mostly empty uh there are no treasures there to be to be looted there's nothing to be gained from there so for the british it would be it would make no sense whatsoever to spend so much effort invests so so many uh, personnel troops etc in invading a land where there is nothing to be gained so why would they invade tibet what would they gain from it invading india made so much sense because well they enriched themselves at the expense of india that's why the west is so fabulously wealthy today because all the wealth that was taken out of places like india and africa mainly india so there was a great deal of benefit 
in occupying India with respect to the cost of occupying India. In the case of Tibet, there was nothing to be gained. You just gain control over an enormous territory where there's very little population, there is no wealth, there is no treasure, nothing. The real wealth was spiritual over there. That's, that's what you had. So there was no point for the British in doing that. When it came to the USSR, again, what would they gain from it? They would gain a big piece of em- almost almost empty territory. Uh, so that's the thing, right? Now, why did the Chinese invade Tibet and annex it illegally, forcibly? Well, the Chinese have geopolitical reasons for doing that. Tibet is the source of the ma- of most of the major rivers in Asia. And by occupying Tibet, the Chinese get to control the source of all the water. And that is one of the major reasons. And of course, there are minerals and other resources in Tibet, which would take uh, long-term occupation and exploitation to uh, benefit from. So the Chinese had a clear geopolitical reason for doing it. But and therefore there is a significant benefit as opposed uh, as compared to the cost of invading and occupying Tibet for the Chinese. But it did not make sense from a cost-benefit perspective to do that for the British or the Soviets, and that's why uh, they did, the British or the Soviets did not make any real significant moves to any real attempt to invade and occupy Tibet. And about sovereignty, how did China succeed in in, uh, invading Tibet? Uh, The Chinese would not have succeeded had they not been given significant assistance by Jawaharlal Nehru. So the Chinese soldiers, when they they invaded Tibet, they were starving. They were freezing to to death. They were so far away from uh, from China. uh, And uh, the logistics were not working out, so they were starving. So what Mr. Nehru, the great Shri Jawaharlal Nehruji did, he supplied thousands of tons of Indian rice to the invading Chinese soldiers. And that's why the Chinese were able to successfully uh, complete their invasion of Tibet. So that's why the Chinese succeeded in invading and occupying Tibet. And that's why their occupation uh, continues. And Tibet was kind of a protectorate of the British Raj and after independence or after the dominion status of 1947, that responsibility passed on to India, but Mr. Nehru could not even administer his own country properly. What about Tibet? So he he was perfectly happy with the Chinese taking over Tibet. And the second reason is that the Tibetans were a very peaceful culture. Uh, They believed in non-violence rather too strongly. Uh, I mean, there are plenty of examples in history of Buddhist cultures having strong military and martial traditions. Take Thailand, for instance. They have very strong martial arts traditions, despite being Buddhists. They have been uh, conquerors and invaders in their own time. The kings of Thailand, the Chakri dynasty, right? Uh, If you look at the other kingdoms, for instance, Myanmar, they also... um, See, Thailand and Myanmar are are a mixture of Buddhist and Hindu. There's no real difference, like I've said millions of times. So the, the so in Thailand, in, in Myanmar, in Cambodia, Laos, you have the martial and military traditions. There is nothing in both the Dharma that says you cannot fight for your self-defense. Similarly, in Japan, which is which used to be a very devoutly Buddhist nation, you had the samurai traditions, martial traditions. You had uh, the Bushido code, you had ninjutsu and so much more, right? And China was a Buddhist nation. And the, the great monk 
Bodhidharma, who was Indian, went there. He was he is considered a Buddhist monk, not a Hindu monk. So he went to China and taught them what is now known as Kung Fu. So there is nothing in Buddhism that says that you cannot fight for self-defense or indulge in any kind of violence for self-preservation. The Tibetans kind of forgot that. And they became completely pacifist and they did not maintain a significant army. And that also is a major reason why the Chinese were able to walk into Tibet once they had the rice that Mr. Nehru provided them. So that's why this happened in a nutshell. Okay, AMV Spot says, why did the Turks destroy non-profitable buildings like Nalanda University when it had nothing to do with material wealth? See, when you are an invader and you invade and conquer uh, another, another territory, another nation, another culture, what you do is you try to destroy all possibilities of resistance. So that makes military sense. If there are military installations, if there are uh, military outposts, you would go and destroy them and you would uh, ensure that you neutralize the, the fighting forces, the soldiers, and so, and so on and so forth. So it makes sense as an invader, as an occupier, to wipe out, to destroy, to seek to destroy military installations and any center where any, any form of resistance in the country you have occupied by force. When it comes to a university, it doesn't have any military purpose. It has a cultural and educational purpose. And yet these Turks went ahead and destroyed all of India's universities, all of India's ancient universities, great universities. They burned all the libraries and they beheaded all the monks. Nalanda had more than 5,000 monks who were all beheaded mostly in one day. Imagine the scene there. And there were so many other universities. They were all destroyed. Takshashila, Tilhara, Vikramshila, Odantapuri, Sharda Peet, and so on and so forth. All of these great universities were destroyed. They were all burned. All the monks were massacred. Monks are not a military force. Teachers are not military for a military force. Students and professors are not a military force. They don't, they don't fight. And yet the Turks did this. So the purpose for doing this was not, it was not a military purpose. It was to, uh, it was a well, it was to ensure that India's culture was destroyed and they succeeded in wiping out all of India's ancient records of historical records, all of India's ancient texts, the ancient uh, Guru Shishya and Gurukul tradition that had been going on, that had been continuing for thousands of years. It's gone. It's all gone now. So they destroyed it. And so, so the purpose was to destroy Indian culture and Indian civilization. It was not a military purpose. It was something much more sinister and evil. So that's what the Turks did. And we should never forget that. Darshan Kothari says, the sun is a burning star, but what is it made of? Because if anything that keeps on burning, burning will end. So why does the sun have no such end? The sun is a burning star. So when you talk about fire, you're talking about a chemical reaction, an exothermic chemical reaction. When you take a matchstick and uh, set it off, because of uh, with the, so what happens is that uh, there is a chemical reaction in the tip of the matchstick. The chemicals ignite. They give off an enormous amount of heat, very localized heat. And it's a chemical reaction. It's an exothermic chemical reaction. So that 
changes, the chemistry changes as a result of this chemical reaction. And the output is this, uh, what we perceive as, as fire. So it, it gives off a great deal of uh, radiation in, in form of heat and light. So that is what we see and what we call fire. And the same applies not even not only in matchsticks, but also when you burn wood or paper or any substance. It's an exothermic chemical reaction, right? So that's what we see on Earth. Now, in the case of the sun, it is not a chemical reaction that we are witnessing. It is a thermonuclear reaction. It's a nuclear reaction that you are witnessing. So, uh, on Earth, you don't get to see nuclear reactions. Uh, there have been a few nuclear tests that were done, uh, the atmospheric tests that a few people have been able to witness. Most nuclear tests have been done underground. And the nuclear reactors that power some of the world's uh, electric supply and also so on, these are uh, these are the nuclear reactions that happen in those reactors. They are uh, they are insulated. They are con confined in the nuclear reactor, so you don't get to see it. The engineers, technicians may be able to see the Cherenkov radiation, etc., but not anything anything apart from that. So. Over 99.9% .9 of humanity has never seen a nuclear reaction on the surface of the planet. But if you're wondering what a nuclear reaction looks like, look east in the morning and see the rising sun. The sun is an enormous nuclear reactor. The fuel that is being consumed by the nuclear reaction is hydrogen. So the sun is an enormous, enormous ball. Uh, it's composed of about 75% roughly hydrogen about 23-24% helium and the rest is heavier elements like uh, oxygen, calcium, carbon <clears throat> and some metals as well. There's, these are all called metals in astrophysics. So the nuclear reaction that takes place is a fusion reaction. You are fusing two hydrogen atoms to form a helium atom. That's essentially what's happening in the core of the sun and that is an extremely and enormously uh, energetic process. It's an extremely energetic reaction. So that is a thermonuclear reaction that you see every day in the morning, every day in the daytime. If you want to see what a nuclear bomb looks like, a continuously exploding nuclear bomb, look at the sun. That is a nuclear reaction. So it's not burning any, any wood or any such thing. Uh, it's a nuclear reaction that consumes hydrogen and gives off, and, and the output is helium. Eventually, the sun will start running out of hydrogen, and then uh, the entire uh, physics will change, but that's a different story. So there is so much hydrogen in the sun that is being consumed, and that's why there is no end. The sun is going to keep on consuming uh, this hydrogen fuel for at least, I would say, the next five billion years or so, until it becomes a red giant, and then the physics will change. Eventually, it will uh, die out, eventually, but we don't need to worry about that. So, in short, that's what the sun is. It's not burning, actually, like the, the kind of fire that we see on Earth. It's a nuclear reaction, an extremely energetic nuclear reaction called a nuclear fusion that you are witnessing. Okay, uh, Slapstick Memes says, please tell us about the Pakistan Water Treaty and how can we sign out of it if it's not in India's interests. So what you're referencing is the Indus, the so-called Indus Waters Treaty. I think it was signed by the Indian government with Pakistan in, I think, 1960, I think. 
it was done by Mr. Nehru, the great Shri Jawaharlal Nehruji. He decided in this treaty to give away, I think, 80% of the water of this of the Saptasindhu region to Pakistan. India only gets to use 20% of the waters, even though all of the uh, rivers pass through India before they reach Pakistan. The Sindhu River, the Ravi, Beas, Chenab, Satlej, etc., all these rivers, they pass through India. And after passing through India, they go into Pakistan. And yet we are giving off, giving away 80% of the water to Pakistan. It's one of the most unequal treaties in the history of humankind. It's as if somebody put a gun to your head and forced you to sign this unequal treaty. And yet it was not the case. India willingly gave up 80% of the, of, the, of the water to Pakistan, despite being the larger nation and the more powerful nation. That's the kind of geopolitics our so-called great statesmen, leaders played. And you can see how much it has harmed the country. So clearly it's not in India's interest. Why should we give off, give away so much of our water to the Pakistanis, our, our sworn enemies? Why should we do that? I mean, the Chinese conquered Tibet primarily for the water because Tibet is the source of uh, most of the major rivers in Asia. So the Chinese get to control that water because they, they, they control Tibet. And they have signed no such treaty with any other Asian nation. They control the water as they wish. And the Asian nations have to put up with that, and they have nothing. There's nothing they can do. So, what was the need to sign this treaty with the Pakistanis? I think the treaty was brokered by the IMF, if I am not mistaken, the International Monetary Fund or something like that. So, it is certainly not in India's interests. So, how can India sign out of it? We can sign out of it anytime we we like. There is no need to adhere to a treaty. That is not in India's interests. The, the Chinese, for instance, uh, signed a treaty with the British when Hong Kong again became a part of China, that there would be one uh, what one nation, two systems, that sort of thing. And recently they have reneged on the treaty. They said that we will no longer um, uh, honor the treaty and now it's one nation, one system. And they are imposing their system on Hong Kong. And what can the British do about it? It's an international, it's an international treaty. It's a treaty signed by two between two nations, a bilateral treaty like the Indus Waters Treaty. So if you're strong enough and if you have sufficient self-respect, then you can always break a treaty. There was this Iran uh, nuclear deal which the Americans broke, right? They turned their back on it. They, they went back on the treaty. They refused to honor the, honor the treaty. They, they themselves signed. So it happens all the time. But you need to have... You need to be a strong nation to be able to do that. So how can India do this? First of all, India needs to start constructing dams on all the rivers. Uh, <clears throat> and then we can weaponize it whenever it's needed. When the Pakistanis, if the Pakistanis in the future try to play any misadventure with India, we can uh, we can cut off the water. So that's what India needs to do. If we, just empty words will not threaten Pakistan. Because if we say that we, we will cut off the water, we currently lack the ability to do that. To actually cut off the water, you need to construct dams on all the rivers. Let the Pakistanis complain and go wherever they want to go. Go to the UN, go wherever else, go to China. Doesn't matter. If India is strong enough, India can do that. So it's something that will happen, I'm sure, in the future. India right now needs to build its economy up to at least $10 trillion. When you reach there, your military will have a correspondingly large size and you will be powerful enough to do such things. So right now, India, I think the government of India is focusing on economic growth, but I think it should also happen in parallel with other kinds of uh, progress. Anyhow, so that's how India can sign out of the treaty or, or you know, uh, 
or declare the treaty null and void. Okay, Aryan Chauhan says, why after the first Indo-Pakistan war on Kashmir, free elections have not been conducted till today to know what the people of Kashmir want as guided by the United Nations? I mean, who the hell is the United Nations to guide us? Who the hell are they? Why do we have to recognize their authority in everything? And even if you go by the UN uh, declaration or whatever it was, it is clearly mentioned in the declaration that in order to get this process going, the Pakistanis need to first withdraw from the territories they occupied in 1947-48. Right? So that's what needs to happen. And my my contention is very simple. Even Pakistan is an illegitimate nation. Uh, the creation of Pakistan was done against the wishes of the people of India. The people of India were never consulted. Are we willing to give up our ancestral civilizational territory? Are we willing to do that? Was there a referendum in India before partition was uh, accepted? No. A small bunch of people, Mohandas, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, Jawahar, and the British, they got together and decided to do this. Right? There was no referendum. And it clearly did not reflect the will of the people. Even the Pashtuns were against it. The Pashtuns were clearly against partition. They wanted a unified India. So, uh, Pakistan itself is an illegitimate state. It needs to be reintegrated into India sometime in the future. Maybe in the next hundred or so years. It's a long-term process. We need not hurry it too much. Uh, So, I would say that there is no need to ever hold any election in Kashmir. It is Indian territory. It has been India's territory for thousands of years. And uh, we need to, I mean, just carry on with our national nation building process. There is no need to have any kind of external interference in India's internal matters. In, uh, if, if you talk about the Kashmir dispute, it is at best a bilateral dispute. At best. So the UN has no role in this. India will retake Gilgit, Baltistan and Pakistan occupied Kashmir in due course of time. I would say it will happen in the next 5 to 10 years. It's going to happen. And then you can have, have all the elections you want to hold, right? So I, I, the point I would like to make is that we need to stop trying to legitimize external actors like the UN and other four and other external actors. Why do we need their guidance? Are we not capable of of uh, choosing our own path as as a as a culture, as a society, as a nation, as a civilization? Are they somehow superior to us that we don't have the wisdom that they will give us the wisdom and the guidance? Why do we need that? India needs to be a strong, confident nation that determines its own destiny. So let's let's talk. Let's stop talking about the UN. We just need to take back Kashmir, and then you can hold as many elections as you as you want in Kashmir. Jane Austen, the great novelist, says, <laughs> asks whether the Fibonacci numbers are originally from India. Yes, of course, they were called the Pingala numbers. The great mathematician Pingala was most likely the first person that we know of who described this series. So this, the Fibonacci series is a very simple series. You take two numbers, you start from 0 and 1, then you add the two numbers. So what is 0 plus 1? It's 1. 
Then you take the last two numbers in the series, which is one and one. You add them, you get two. Then you add two and one, you get three. When you add three and two, you get five, and so on and so forth. That's the Fibonacci series. So it was. It is one of the simplest series. It is a good. It is a reasonably good approximation of the. Uh, the Fibonacci spiral is a good approximation of the golden spiral, the golden ratio and so on. So this is a concept that was known in India for a very, very long time. It's a very simple concept. It's strange that the Europeans, Arabs, etc. never thought of it, right? So this, all this knowledge, this Indian mathematical knowledge was transmitted to the West by the Arabs. The Arabs never hid the fact that this was Indian knowledge. They were very clear about the fact that this was all Indian mathematics. And that's what they called it in their books. But when these texts made their way into Europe, the Europeans uh, tried to conceal where the real where this where this origin where this information, this knowledge originated. So the decimal system they called it the Arabic numerals. It's actually the Indian numerals or the Hindu numerals. Today the Wikipedia says it's the Hindu Arabic numerals or something. It's, there's nothing Arabic about it. The Arabs were just the transmitters to the West. Uh, so the Fibonacci series, the Fibonacci numbers, yes, they, it's, a, it's an Indian discovery. Uh, the earliest known person, uh, uh, scientist, Indian mathematician to write about this was Pingala. So it is more appropriate to call it the Pingala series or the Pingala numbers. Okay, Vishal Mahajan asks, what do you think about Graham Hancock's theories about the Amazon rainforest region and the history of America before Columbus? Uh, it's an interesting question. Graham Hancock has been writing about this. He has focused primarily on the uh, Americas and his theory is that, uh, so according to mainstream history, uh, North America was uh, the first human presence in North America, according to mainstream uh, history, happened about 13,000 or 14,000 years ago when the Aleutian Strait, the Bering Strait, was frozen over because of uh, the last glacial episode, the Ice Age, and therefore humans were able to cross this bridge, this land bridge, uh, walking, just walk walk across it. And it's it's quite clear that the people, uh, the, the indigenous natives, the true natives of America, North America and Southern America also, are ethnically quite similar to the people of, of uh, Siberia and Mongolia, right? So it's clear that there was some, uh, there was a significant migration from Eastern Asia into North America and eventually it uh, made its way all the way into Southern America and South America. So that is the mainstream history. So it says that there was no human habitation in the Americas before about 13, 14,000 years before today. Before that, there was no human presence there. So Graham Hancock says, according to his theory, he says that there was human presence much before that, maybe even 100,000 years before today, or even before that. So that's what he has been claiming. That's what he has been writing about in his, in his books and all. And he has been dismissed for a very long time as a fringe researcher, as a pseudo-historian and so on. And now what happens is that he is... Uh, increasingly getting vindicated. We are finding, I mean, uh, archaeologists have discovered evidence of human uh, of human remains in South America somewhere, I don't remember where, which is about 130,000 years old. So that totally disproves this theory, this mainstream uh, theory that human habitation in, in human presence in this region is only about 13, 14,000 years old. So I think his theories make a lot of sense. 
and now they are gaining mainstream acceptance grudgingly but slowly right so that's that shows what nonsense these mainstream historians have been peddling for such a long time for just such a long time it's just dogma even though there is evidence staring you in the face like the olmec statues for instance in south america there are these giant olmec statues which are several thousand years old they depict people with uh, with african features not asian features so it looks like it was made by ancient humans who may have traveled from africa crossed the atlantic ocean southern atlantic ocean and made their way into southern america now again the, so that's one example which may have happened many thousand years ago and so on and so forth so i think his theories are very interesting he has spoken about the amazon rainforest about a super soil that was used there so the amazon rainforest which is so huge looks like it was an artificially planted garden and uh, because the spaniards wiped out the civilizations of south america and uh, most of the people died out because of uh, diseases these people had introduced so then the jungle reclaimed all these lands and today if you do uh, if you do a laser or or radar lidar analysis of the terrain you can find structures hidden below, beneath the forest so his theories make a lot of sense he he says that the human civilization is actually very old much older than what we think maybe may, may way older than 10000 years before today and so on so his theories make a lot of sense his theories are based upon on on actual evidence and facts and i think in the future is going to become mainstream so i'm really happy for him that he has been vindicated he had been ridiculed for like more than two decades as a pseudo historian and a crazy guy but well that's not the case so yeah it makes a lot of sense okay bharat chandra says um <laughs> <laughs> are they mental our former prime ministers exposing our intelligence agents raw agents in pakistan i can't imagine the horrific tortures they may have gone through why would any sane person give out the information of your own agents to the enemy country so as far as i know there have been two indian prime ministers who have done this the first one was shri morarji desai and the second one was shri uh, ik gujral so mr gujral was prime minister for 3 months in the 1990s 3 months approximately 3 months and uh, mr uh, what's his name uh, the other guy morarji desai was prime minister for a short period of time one or two years something like that in the 1980s late 70s or early 80s some, somewhere like that i don't remember i have never found these people interesting so i have not studied their lives in detail so i can't place the exact time frame late 70s or early 80s that's no, that's morarji desai most likely late 70s so what mr morarji desai did was yeah i think uh, zia ul haq was the pakistani dictator at the time the dictator of pakistan so what morarji desai did was that he said i he declared that i want peace with peace with pakistan and we will not do anything that will, that will harm our relations relations with pakistan and therefore what he did was he disclosed all the identities and locations of india's intelligence assets raw agents in pakistan to the pakistanis but the pakistanis did not reciprocate and they did not disclose the identities of their agents in india it was a unilateral gesture that was not reciprocated and mr morarji desai was perfectly happy with it similarly in the 1990s mr ik gujral who was prime minister for all of 3 months did the same thing 
he disclosed i don't know if he disclosed it but he wound up he, he stopped supporting all the indian intelligence agents the entire network in pakistan i'm sure they were all caught and one can imagine what sort of atrocities and tortures they must have undergone if any of them are still alive they will be languishing in pakistani jails and they will stay there forever essentially now why would an indian prime minister prime minister do such a thing this is something that has been this is something that hurts india's long term national interest because we want to know what's happening in pakistan it is it is in our favor in our benefit if we know if we gather intelligence from pakistan from pakistani territory if we have intelligence assets embedded deep in, inside pakistani society that's what every country does that's what the israelis do that's what the russians do that's what the americans do that's how state craft that's how that's how trade craft is played so why would an indian prime minister expose and destroy india's intelligence network in pakistan i mean one could ascribe this to 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 stupidity maybe he was stupid he did not understand he did not understand what he was doing but when you are at this position of prime minister you can't be stupid a stupid person cannot become a prime minister so the only other thing you can say is that this was an anti national act it was an action an act that harmed india's long term national interests and an action such as that can only be termed an anti national action so we had two prime ministers who were anti nationals and coincidentally i don't know what mr gujral but mr morari desai was a lifelong guess what he was a lifelong gandhian he was a devotee of mohandas gandhi he called himself a gandhian and mr gandhi is well known for his unilateral concessions to foreign powers to the british to the rioters to the terrorists to the moplas to the butchers of kolkata 1946 direct action day right he would give these unilateral concessions to all these people but he would never do anything for the actual people of india for for the mainstream population of india so many unilateral concessions against the indian national interest so this is something that mr gandhi used to do and this is something mr morarji desai continued in the same tradition and even mr ik gujral did the same thing so that's the kind of leaders we had which is why i keep saying if india will succeed in the long term it will succeed only if we produce good leaders and if we promote the right the the good leaders to the to the highest positions leadership is what matters you may be the best society in the world you may be the most prosperous nation in the world but if you have poor, poor leadership it's all going to collapse like a pack of cards it's all about leadership aranya raj says is it true that the hindi language and hindustani music was created by the turkic invaders the turkic invaders spoke various turkic languages like the chagatai language and various other turkic languages so why would they create a new language for india i mean what what would they gain from it so no the hindi language was not created by the turks hindustani music i mean would these guys were nomads they lived a nomadic lifestyle in central asia they never stayed in one place they would move from one place to another they lived in tents 
they had no culture to speak of do you think a tradition as profound as indian classical music with thousands of ragas that are so profound and so ancient do you think a bunch of ragtag half wild nomads would have the intellectual capacity to create a tradition like that i mean it makes no sense whatsoever so indian classical music has been developed in india over several thousand years many thousand years it's the oldest known musical tradition in the history of humanity and the hindi language is a language that's native to india the so called urdu language urdu whatever the hell you call it that is a mongrel half breed language that is a combination of hindi grammar and some hindi vocabulary which is mixed up with turkic words persian words and arabic words it is a an inferior mongrel language with a lot of foreign contamination but it's essentially the same as hindi because uh, you call bollywood the hindi film industry it's actually the urdu urdu film industry so urdu has become mainstream mainstreamed in india because of bollywood so that's why all these strange notions and beliefs have crept in into indian society that maybe the turks did us a great favor by creating the hindi language and giving us hindustani music which is not the case which is not the case at all rudra mahadev says i feel frustrated with the amount of corruption in every area of government law and order and judiciary system i feel like in, uh, like leaving india forever for other great opportunities cause i feel bharat doesn't want to be prosperous again i feel that as if i as an individual doesn't don't matter in india's future what should i do i want to see india prosperous again but i don't trust the indian political system your sentiment is shared by millions of people in india lots of people leave india because of this region no reason the belief is that the people of india are the cause of this which is not the case it is the indian system the the indian governance system the government the institutions are nothing but the british raj it has never been dismantled so these institutions the bureaucrats the officials they act as if they are officials of a foreign occupying power if they give you justice it's as a favor to you you don't deserve it you can't ask for it you can't demand it it's not your right it is something they give to you as a gift if they give you any service in india it's 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 a favor that they bestow upon you that is the attitude of any government official go to any government office even the smallest petty little official will have that attitude right so that is a um, that is a, the legacy of the british raj which we never removed after independence after dominion status right after 47 and the education system again victimizes students and so on and so forth so it is a sentiment that you see everywhere people want to see india great again india want to see india prosperous again but the system doesn't want that the system is designed to keep india under some kind of foreign occupation as if india was still occupied by a foreign power it wants to keep indian uh the in india citizens oppressed and suppressed it 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 stifles every attempt to innovate and do something good for the country so it is a system that has created the situation so what you should do i mean i'm assuming you're a youngster uh, more than half of my viewers are below the age of 25 so i'm assuming you're a youngster what i would say is get the hell out of the country i am not saying go away forever 
I'm saying that if you really want to contribute to India, go see the world, go gain experience in whatever field, whatever uh, industry you're going to be good at. Go work abroad, get lots of experience, make something of yourself, acquire some genuine skills, become wealthy, and then come back to India and try to change the system. Because I I hope that in the next 10, 20 years, India will change significantly. There are reforms being, being implemented. I am... Obviously, I would like to see that the pace of reforms be much faster. We need to reform all India's institutions, the bureaucracy, the judiciary, the government system, the constitution, the laws, everything needs to be overhauled. It will take time. So if you are a youngster, go out of the country, leave the country for 10, 20 years, make something of yourself, become wealthy, become powerful, acquire skills, acquire experience and expertise, then come back to India and Contribute what you can. So that's what I would say. I will never advise people, especially capable, talented people, to stay back in India as a youngster. Because if you are earning (laughs) 10,000 rupees a month, you can't change the nation. But if you are earning a million dollars a month, you can certainly change the nation. So first, go elsewhere, make your fortune, make something of yourself, then come back and, and contribute to the country. That's what I would suggest. Anita says, do we really require such a long constitution or would a small constitution like that of the US be better for us? So let's understand what a constitution is. A constitution is not the legal system. It's not a set of laws. It is a set of guidelines which tell you how the country is to be run. So the laws are all based upon these guidelines, right? The code of laws of any country is based on the constitution of the country. A country like the UK, for instance, doesn't have a constitution, which is a, a special case because it's a it's a monarchy, actually. So a constitution is a set of guidelines that tell you how what are the what are the guiding principles of the country, what is the value system, what is the culture, what is the civilization, what are the values, what are the principles, and so on. That's what a constitution actually outlines. Now, India's constitution is something not even a constitutional expert actually understands. You ask any two constitutional experts and they will have a lot of differences about the way they interpret India's constitution. I think the Indian constitution is one of the longest constitutions in the world, full of schedules and chapters and God knows what. Nobody has ever read the constitution in full. It has more than 500 pages, if I am not mistaken. The American constitution has seven pages. A school child can understand the U.S. Constitution. It is actually taught in, I don't know, sixth grade, seventh grade, right? It is something every child can understand. And it makes it very clear what kind of country the U.S. is. And again, the amendments to the the U.S. Constitution are, are very few and far between. In India, the Constitution is amended every other day. We have had more than 100, at least 100 amendments to the Indian Constitution including some amendments during the the emergency when the words uh, secular and uh, socialist were inserted illegally in the preamble of the constitution. So the constitution doesn't serve in, in, in India in any way. It simply complicates matters. It is a foreign constitution. It, it espouses and promotes foreign values, Western values, 
it is explicitly hindu phobic in articles 25 to 30 i think and so on and so forth why do we need such such a constitution reject it india needs to move beyond that india needs a new constitution a constitution that is rooted and grounded in indian cultural and civilizational values that's what india needs in other words india needs a dharmic constitution a new one so countries uh, change their constitution all the time sri lanka is right now uh, undergoing a process of of writing a new constitution why can't we do it the thing is it serves the politicians it keeps the country divided and that is of great benefit to politicians who espouse soft separatism like the like the uh, dravidian parties in southern india various other political outfits mainstream outfits in northern india etc and so on and so forth so all of this actually benefits politicians and then that's why they don't want the constitution to be discarded but if india is to rise again as a true civilization we need to change the constitution and that is something that will benefit every single citizen of the country so that that's what should happen eventually okay aditi says uh, our body is uh, sadguru says our body is just a heap of memory if today i as an indian start living in china eating their foods my features won't change because body remembers i might not cons- consciously know my seventh great grandmother but i may have her nose when we all have a similar origin that of africa why do we look so different okay i'm not sure of what uh, mr sadguru has said but okay assuming what he has said uh, so the main question is if if we all originate from africa why do we look so different all of us which is a good question uh so the best to to our best knowledge we are a species that originated in africa i mean the, the data that we have all of it 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 points to that of course in the future if we have new discoveries new data then that story may change it's a story that keeps changing as you find more data but so far it is it is uh, widely accepted that our origin as a species is in the continent of africa and from there the latest migration out of africa was about 70 75000 years ago which is the origin of all non african humans who are living on the planet today including me including indians chinese asians europeans etc so if you we were all africans originally why do we all look so different it's called evolution and adaptation see it's like this if i were to spend a day on the beach shirtless from morning till evening by evening my skin will be three or four shades darker because i'm exposed to sunlight in india if 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 you do it in india it's especially true because india is in the tropical zone so you have more sunlight uh uh pouring in and so in in the course of 8 to 10 hours my skin will be two or three shades darker it happens very quickly now if i were to live in let's say somewhere in deep southern india tamil nadu kerala and if uh, my family was to live there for like 10 20 generations or let's say 5 centuries i think it will become 
an evolutionary adaptation that we will all gain darker skin because since you are getting so much expo- so much more exposure to sunlight the body needs to protect itself from that by creating more melanin and eventually that memory is transferred to the genes and that's why you get darker skin if a person from southern india if a person who has dark skin for instance were to move if a family of dark skin people were to move to the northern latitudes let's say in uh, let's say in mongolia or or let's say even punjab kashmir etc and they live there for 20 30 40 generations they will acquire lighter skin because you need a certain amount of sunlight to absorb sufficient vitamin d so it's all evolution adaptation you adapt you evolve and humans evolve over time people who live in uh, in in regions of asia siberia etc where there is so much snow there is so much snow that the glare of slow snow can blind you it can cause snow blindness so then if you live in such a region your body will eventually adapt to make your eyes smaller so that less sunlight comes in so that is an adaptation to uh, offset the the possibility of snow blindness and so on and so forth so that's why we have evolved over time it it doesn't take very long to evolve maybe 10 20 30 generations is sufficient to see a significant change in in characteristics so people who live in northern europe people who live in uh, northern asia they have significantly lighter skin because they these regions receive very less sunlight compared to what you would receive in indonesia southern asia uh, the indian subcontinent africa etc so that's why you see all this all these diverse features and characteristics so that is the reason why even though we are all originally from africa if you go back 70 80000 years we still look so different because we have because in the past there was no easy traveling today you can just hop onto a plane and travel anywhere you want in the world right today you can do that in the past communities were isolated for centuries or even million thousands of years millennia especially if you lived in uh, <clears throat> isolated regions in high valleys in in uh, in subarctic regions etc you would be isolated there for thousands of years I and mean, that's why you would uh, develop uh, very characteristic features so that is the reason why you have all these uh, different uh, what is it called it's called phenotypes i think you know different uh, appearances of different ethnicities and different geographical regions that's the reason why we see this okay mau ji says will you shed light on the parsi community's role in the opium export from india to china that's an interesting question so who are the parsis the parsis are uh, they are migrants refugees their ancestors were refugees from iran from persia uh, when the uh, invasion of persia happened the 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 arabic invasion of persia happened uh, the country of persia was very very quickly and brutally converted to the religion of the arabs right this happened over a course of 20 20 30 years very rapid change and the people the original religion or culture of of persia was zoroastrianism which is a which is a form which is one of which is descended from ancient hinduism right <clears throat> so that was the original religion of the persians now they were all converted to the religion of the arabs now some people 
were unwilling to give up the religion and the culture. So they escaped from Persia and the only place where they thought of escaping to was the old homeland of the Persians, which is India. So they went by boat and they reached the western coast of Gujarat, which is, uh, yeah, the western coast of Gujarat, where they were very kindly, very magnanimously given refuge by the local king of Gujarat. And they were allowed to continue worshipping their gods and continue uh, practicing their customs, their traditions. The only conditions were that they were to adopt Indian dress, Indian dressing style, and they were to start speaking the local language, which was Gujarati. And that is the story of the Parsis. Now, the thing is very strange. Uh, the, the strange thing is that for they, they came to India more than a thousand years ago. More than, uh, about 1200 or so years ago, roughly. And until the British occupation of India, the Parsis were almost completely anonymous. They lived in southern Gujarat mostly. And they did not achieve anything of any significance. They were one of the, well, almost unknown communities in this region. So they did not achieve anything spectacular. They did not uh, <clears throat> excel in any discipline like trade or anything. But after the British occupied India, the Parsis suddenly became superstars, right? So what happened was that the British did this as part of their policy to divide and rule. So they were in the process of disastrously impoverishing India, of rendering India destitute. But they decided to, because the Parsis were foreigners, they were the descendants of foreigners. So the British decided to give them special treatment. So they gave them special privileges and permissions to start doing certain trades which had been destroyed in India. For instance, the British had destroyed the shipbuilding trade in India. But they allowed the Parsis to take up the trade. So the Parsis became shipbuilders. They, they were given, given other privileges that were withheld from other Indians. And that's how the Parsis began, uh, began succeeding in trade and commerce and all that. It was all artificial in nature. Right? So that's what happened. Now, when the British uh, started trading with China, they were, uh, they were buying Chinese tea. Because there was this big craze in, in, in Britain and in Europe and in the West for Chinese tea. Now, to buy Chinese tea, you had to give money to the Chinese. But that would impoverish the British because they only wanted to extract wealth out of India and possibly from China. So this strategy they hit upon was to cultivate opium in India instead of food crops in great quantities and then to sell that opium to China in exchange for tea instead of selling, uh, instead of buying tea in exchange for silver. This caused a great deal of strife in China. Millions of Chinese became opium addicts. The Chinese emperor tried to fight back against this. Then there were the opium wars and the Chinese were humiliated by the British, by the Americans and so on. It's, it's not just one nation, but the British were, were the main drivers. So they forced Indians in the region of Malwa, I think, to, to cultivate opium instead of food food crops. This contributed to the famines that the British were engineering in, in, in India. So opium was grown in India. It was transported to China and tea was taken out of China and other goods were taken out of China. This impoverished China. And the traders who did this, who uh, participated in this opium trade, who were at the forefront of the opium trade were the Parsis. 
individuals like that fellow, what's his name? Uh, Jamsit Gigi Boy, who became fabulously wealthy. So he was a drug dealer. Then there were the Ready Money Brothers, other Parsi stooges who became extremely rich as a consequence of this trade in drugs. So the Parsis took the opportunity to become drug runners, drug dealers, and they became fabulously wealthy as a consequence. And then they they restyled themselves as philanthropists and all that. And they started uh, giving money, donating money to construct buildings. The, the JJ School of Arts in Bombay, Mumbai, is named after Jamset Gigi Boy, the drug dealer. And various other things. This guy, uh, Kawasji or whatever his name, Ready Money. So this Ready Money guy in the 19th century, when India was going through terrible famines, which were created by the British, he was extremely wealthy and he donated lakhs of rupees, lots of money to, to the British to create monuments in England. Right? So that's why they called him Ready Money, because it was always at the service of the British. So that is how the Parsis became so fabulously wealthy. And that's the origin of all these big uh, Parsi companies. That's why the Parsis are, are, so, are so rich today. Because they profited, benefited from this trade in drugs and other things. Right? So that is the story. So all this money that the Parsis... Today it is believed that the Parsis are, are exceptional people. They succeeded where all the Indian, other Indians failed. That is not the case. If they were so exceptional, what were they doing before the British came to India? They did nothing exceptional before that. Right? So it is a, a clear case of social engineering. The, the good old divide and rule strategy of the British. So all the Parsi money <laughs> comes from this, this, uh, this activity. Uh, because of the special preferences given to, the, given to them by the British and because of the trade in drugs, in opium, with China. And that's why the Chinese have this, uh, they, they hold this grudge against India because, because Indian merchants, these Parsis, were at the forefront of <clears throat> the humiliation of the Chinese during this opium trade. That's an interesting and rather forgotten chapter of history. Ishwara Moody says, what's your opinion about the UPI technology and Aadhaar? Should India be proud of this? Can India promote UPI through financial diplomacy? <clears throat> so UPI is a breakthrough technology which the Indian government created. Aadhaar, it is, it, is, it is based on Aadhaar, the unique identifier that every Indian has. And it has genuinely revolutionized the entire, uh, uh, the way transactions, financial and economic transactions are done in this country, in India. It has totally revolutionized everything. See, when this uh, technology was first rolled out, when it was unveiled, people like, what's his name? What's his name? Ah, Chidambaram. Chidambaram, the former home minister, etc. Chidambaram said that Indians are poor. Indians don't have mobile phones. How will Indians use this? How wrong was he? Every Indian has a mobile phone today and everybody uses UPI. People, you, I've heard people use UPI uh, to, to purchase vegetables, for to purchase groceries, and so on, to, to give donations to temples, and so on and so forth. So everybody uses UPI today. India has leapfrogged ahead of all other nations in electronic transactions, monetary transactions. It has gone far, far ahead of the second largest country, which is China, far ahead. 
so it is a revolutionary technology it is truly eventually going to make india cashless a cashless society is going to happen in the next 10 years or 20 years i would say at at, at most so it is something that has truly made um, financial monetary transaction transactions very easy to do it has empowered the people of india i think india should be very proud of it should it, uh, and today other countries are trying to emulate that other countries i mean europe and the us and america they are trying to emulate what india has done isn't that interesting india has uh, taken a leadership role in in this matter so i think india should be very proud of it should india promote you to upi through financial diplomacy sure let's do it uh, why not if it benefits india in some way the government can go ahead and do this but india should be very proud of what's happened of what's been achieved there are two, uh, there are a couple uh, two or three or four things in the past few years half decade or so that have totally transformed india one is upi and aadhar the second thing is cheap and reliable and fast internet india has the lowest data rates in the world it has truly empowered the people of india it has truly connected india together as a nation and with the world india has the, has the lowest rate per gb of uh, of internet data in the world or one of the lowest rates and it's fast and it's reliable today so it's because of private companies like jio uh, and airtel right there's a reason why the mainstream media in india tries to demonize reliance and adani and all that because they are contributing to the growth of india so that they demonize them term them as capitalist and crony capitalism and all which is totally false so you have fast internet you have upi and aadhar and you have gst before gst you had octroi which essentially reduced india to a collection of independent independent uh, states every time you sent some goods across state boundaries you had to pay uh, this octroi tax at every single state boundary and you had uh, you had waiting queues for for days on, on end so it made transportation of goods across the country almost impossible and that's why the prices of goods were so high and, also, and so on so gst has revolutionized that i agree that some of the gst rates are still too high because various political parties ensured that happened but slowly over time it will all become more rational so gst upi and aadhar and cheap fast internet these things have revolutionized india in the last 5 years india is i think on the brink of a major transformation which we are not able to understand because it's it's happening in real time but if you will look back 10 20 years from today you will realize how big a monu- and how monumental this transformation is india is truly uh transforming what it is so it's good it's great india should be proud of it okay ishwar roshan says which is a better form of developing a city horizontal development expanding land use or vertical development building skyscrapers should india switch to vertical development from the present horizontal style as india's population is rising with a limit, limited geographical area of our country this is a very interesting question so historically india has had horizontal development you have towns villages cities that are that, that expand horizontally in the past we had excellent city planning town planning during the saraswati sindhu phase of our history and even later before the 
Turkic and European invasions of India. Afterwards, everything got destroyed. So India has traditionally had horizontal development. Of course, in the Saraswati Sindhu phase, we had multi-storied buildings. That is well known. Two-storied, three-storied buildings or maybe even more. So we had that technology 5,000 years ago. But those were not skyscrapers, like 30, 40, 50-storied buildings. We We did not have that at the time. Maybe the technology wasn't there. Today, like you have very rightly observed, uh, we have a ridiculous growth of population. We we are 1.3 billion strong, which is ridiculous. So clearly, if we were to do horizontal development, it would be it would take up all the land in the nation, and therefore it makes sense to go go vertical and create uh, skyscraper style residential buildings, which you see in all Indian metros. You have these 10-storied, 20-storied apartments, uh, flat structure and all that, in which people live in these flats, and these are all uh, stacked vertically. So that is something we need to do right now. Hopefully in the future, when our population is back under control, then we may be able to go back to a more horizontal style of, uh, of living, maybe a couple of centuries in the future. You have to plan long term. As of today, it makes sense to have more of this vertical developmental style because we have no option right now. Of course, we have to remember that uh, it is not natural for humans to live in these vertical style buildings. Uh, It is always beneficial to live closer to the ground, closer to the earth, more connected with nature and all that. Today, India's cities are all concrete jungles, which is kind of sucking the joy out of people's lives who who live in metropolitan cities. Hopefully, this is a phase which will not last very long, maybe 100, 200 years. But as of today, yes, it makes sense to have more of a vertical style of architecture to absorb the population of India and give everybody uh, good housing to live in. Harshit says, asks, what factors prevented India from having a renaissance in medieval times? Okay, let us define Renaissance and let's define medieval times. So when you talk about medieval times, it's usually about um, the first half of the second millennium. So between about 11, 1200 AD, 215, 16, 1700 AD, thereabouts, right? That is roughly the medieval period, depending on which historian you ask. And what is the meaning of Renaissance? The Renaissance is a French word. It means rebirth. So a renaissance means a rebirth of the country's culture, of its economy, its civilization and all that. So the typical classical example of renaissance is the Italian renaissance, the French renaissance, all that, which happened in Europe when Europe became exceptionally, fabulously rich as a result, as a consequence of its colonial activities. So that's when the European society became very prosperous, the merchants became very rich, and they started investing in the arts, in culture. So you had all these uh, sculptors and artists like Michelangelo, Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci, and so on, who, who built all these, who, who created these magnificent paintings and sculptures that adorn uh, cities in Italy, Fiorentina, Florence, Venice, Trieste, etc., and this spread across Europe. So that's a renaissance. So Europe was in the throes of the Dark Ages, when it was tightly controlled by the church, by the Catholic Church, Vatican. 
and people were illiterate and everything was in poverty, etc. And then you had the Renaissance when you had a huge infusion of money, of wealth. The average uh, prosperity levels rose significantly and you had this flowering of culture. So that is a Renaissance. What factors prevented India from having a Renaissance, undergoing a Renaissance in the medieval times? So between 1100 and 1700 AD, if you look at the time period, and let's let's call that, for instance, the medieval times, then India was under foreign occupation. India was under Turkic occupation. The Turks were doing their best to actively destroy Indian culture. They destroyed all of India's universities. They destroyed all of India's great temples in northern India. Thousands, maybe tens of thousands of temples were destroyed. All of India's great uh, cultural and educational leaders, professors, scholars, all were murdered. Indians were oppressed horribly. There were these mass conversion campaigns which succeeded in Afghanistan, in Gandhar. Gandhar has now become a separate country, Afghanistan, a different culture, right? And so on. So when you are under a foreign occupation, they are destroying your culture and they are siphoning off your money and enriching themselves and, and, and impoverishing the population of the country, you can never have a renaissance. So that is the factor, the only factor, the one factor that prevented India from having a renaissance. India was fabulously rich. And then the foreign occupations happened because we were not united. And that's why there was no flowering of culture. The culture was actually destroyed. Much of India's culture has been destroyed today as, as, we, as we speak. And that process continues today under the secular socialist regime and constitution and laws. So to have a renaissance of India, to have a new flowering of India's culture, what needs to happen? First of all, the foreign constitution, the foreign laws, the foreign governance structure needs to be thrown out. You need a constitution with Indian values. You need laws that are based in Indian values and Indian culture. And you need a governance structure and institutions like the judiciary, etc. that are based in, on, in Indian values and that are accountable to the people of India. That is number one. Secondly, we need to expand our economy greatly. Once the per capita GDP goes beyond $10,000, then you are a middle-income country. And that's, that's when the expressions of culture will start flowering. And of course, you need to ensure that all the foreign interference, especially cultural interference in, in India, should stop. There is an, an enormous amount of foreign cultural and religious interference in India. Billions of dollars of money is being poured into India to carry out various activities, right? So all that needs to stop. If we can achieve all that, then we will have a new renaissance in India. We had many fake episodes of renaissance in India. The so-called Bengali cultural renaissance, which is which is uh, something India's historians like to write about. You see, when India's historians promote something, there's always something fishy in it. Bengal's cultural renaissance, so-called cultural renaissance, was concerted efforts and attempts by certain intellectuals, like Ram Mohanro, etc., to reform Hinduism. Why do you need to reform Hinduism? So that's the thing, right? So there was a fake renaissance. It was not a real renaissance. A real renaissance is when you have grassroots flowering of culture because of a significant amount of prosperity. So that is something that will hopefully happen in the next 50 years. That's what one can hope for.
Dominic says, what is the future of astronauts in India? Is there any scope for astronauts in India or is the only option America? Well, India does have a space program. India does have plans to uh, to send humans into space in the next two, three, four, five years, sometime in that time frame. So we will have astronauts in India soon, one hopes. And they, they, the government has stated that we, India will eventually have its own space station in orbit around the Earth and so on and so forth. So yes, there is a scope for a limited number of astronauts in the next 10, 20 years. I think what needs to happen is that uh, we, sh- we need to encourage private actors and private companies to venture into space exploration, like, for instance, what SpaceX has done in the US. So SpaceX has completely revolutionized the space uh, industry in the US. They are on the brink in the next 10 years of wiping out uh, the uh, Lockheed Martin and other companies, the United Launch Alliance, because they are so nimble. They operate like a startup. They, they do multiple launches a month. They have the capacity to do that. And they are always innovating, always building a more powerful and better rocket. The technologies they have developed are, they have developed them at breakneck speed and very good innovative technologies like the uh, reusable boosters and all, and all, all that. And you don't see any of that innovation in, in, in India, in ISRO, because ISRO is run by the government. And in ISRO, the scientists and engineers can't do anything without approval from the government bureaucrats or whoever it is who is overseeing ISRO. And politicians and bureaucrats and other officials, they don't have any vision. They don't have any understanding of science, of, of, of technology, of, of engineering and that's why they're happy with the little rockets we have today, like the PSLV and the GSLV. Those are little rockets compared to what SpaceX is building. And the SpaceX uh, the company has al- already built the Dragon booster, which they use to ferry astronauts into, into Earth orbit and so on. So there is a significant scope in the future for astronauts in the US. There's also Virgin Galactic, which uh, is offering space tourism services. And then you have Blue Origin which also has uh, been able to go to send people into space. So these are private companies, very nimble, agile companies, startups essentially, that are taking the lead in the US. So if India were to create the right environment for private players to succeed in space exploration, then you will have this field open up and then you will have opportunities in the next 20, 30 years for Indians to become astronauts without having to go to another country, you know? So that could happen if we change the system and reform the system significantly. So that's what needs to happen. I hope it happens. Because I know every youngster, every kid in the, in, 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 in the world who wants to become an astronaut, right? They want to go to space and experience uh, weightlessness, space travel, all that. So um, today, if you want to be an astronaut in India, you need to be a fighter pilot. You need to have that expertise. In the future, it won't be necessary. I mean, recently, Blue Origin sent up William Shatner into space, the actor who played uh, Captain Kirk in Star Trek. And that guy is more than 90 years old today. And a 90-year-old was able to travel to space. So you don't need exceptional fitness or such abilities. I think almost anybody can be sent into space once you have the ability to to launch people on a routine basis. So as of today, there is not much scope unless you are a fighter pilot, unless you're part of the Indian Air Force. 
as a fighter pilot. In the future, if reforms happen, there may be more possibilities opening up. And I hope it happens. Okay, Gayatri asks, why is the Indian government not focusing on solar power? We have abundant potential there. Is the initial investment too expensive? So actually, I would disagree with this assessment that the government is not focusing on solar power. You may not be aware of it. Uh, India is focusing significantly on solar power. There was this target of uh, of uh, creating 100 gigawatts of solar electricity by which year was it? Uh, that target was meant was met several years before it was due. So India is investing significantly in solar energy, in solar power. India is the founding member, the founder of the Global Solar Alliance, which the latest entrant is the United States. So India is the leader globally in this uh, solar energy uh, initiative. And in the future, India is going to expand its solar energy, solar electricity capabilities manifold in the next five to 10 years. So I think India is one of the leaders in the world when it comes to solar power. And yes, I agree that it, we can take it much, much further ahead than what it is being done today. The major in, impediment when it comes to India is that we are importing 90% of the solar panels from other countries. We need to start building these panels in India. Then the prices will drop even further and then we will be able to reach our true full potential in generating electricity from solar power. So that's what needs to happen. But India is doing well thus far. Okay, this is going to be the final question for today. Yashwant says, why did persons like Dayananda Saraswati and Swami Vivekananda criticize our dharma? In our holy books, the sun is depicted as a god who can talk, etc., in spite of advancements in astronomy, why then this misconception? Okay, I'm going to answer the first question uh, about Dayananda Saraswati and Swami Vivekananda criticizing Dharma. So, let's talk about Mr. Saraswati first. He was born, I think, in Gujarat. And uh, then he spent his career elsewhere. So, you know... <clears throat> People tell me, I mean, I, I had said uh, that he was, so here's what we know about Dayanand Saraswati. He, he founded the Arya Samaj, I think, which is, uh, which, which, which champions a monotheistic form of Hinduism. So it is a reform movement. It seeks to reform Hinduism. And when you say you want to reform Hinduism, it is implicit that you believe that Hinduism is a backward and broken religion or culture, which is why it needs reforms. Right? So, Dayananda Saraswati was in, fa in favor of a monotheistic form of Hinduism because he felt it was superior to the polytheistic form of Hinduism, which has been around for thousands of years. And he was against idol worship, Murti Puja, and so on and so forth. So, here's the thing. I have not studied Mr. Saraswati in any great detail. I have not studied his book. What is called some Prakash thing. Satyartha Prakash. People tell me, read this chapter of Satyartha Prakash and read that chapter because it clarifies his vision. I am not interested. When I come across a person, like, like a historical figure like Dhanan Saraswati, I look at the big picture first. I see what was his philosophy. And the philosophy is extremely clear. He was a Hinduism reformer. 
He was against Murti Puja. He was in favor of monotheism. When I see this big picture, it tells me I don't need to read any further about his philosophy, about his writing, because it is an inferior thing. He is not <laughs> worth investing my time in. So what I can say is that Dayanand Saraswati was somebody with an inferiority complex. He found monotheism, the Abrahamic monotheism superior to Hinduism. That's why he tried to transform Hinduism into something like the Abrahamic religions. He even created a book. So one God, one book. And maybe he would be the prophet perhaps, you know. That sort of thing. So I have no interest in Dayanand Saraswati. He was a mentally colonized person with an inferiority complex. I know you. some people are going to hate me for saying this. Well, Nothing new. <laughs> so, so that's the reason why he criticized Dharma because he was a person with a deep inferiority complex. Now, when it comes to Swami Vivekananda, when it comes to Swami Vivekananda, I have again not studied his life in great detail. I have not studied his writings in great detail. Here is the thing, guys. You know, it's like this. When India's historians portray somebody as being great, it sets off warning bells in my head. There is this uh, so-called historian these days, some woman, this individual or something, who is portraying Aur- Aurangzeb as a great, great, great king of India, right? And Indian textbook also in the past, they depicted Aurangzeb as a great pious man, as a pious leader, and so on. So when they portray somebody as good, when they portray Tipu Sultan, the butcher of Mysore, as being a great freedom fighter, it sets off alarm bells in your head, in my head at least. And same for Ram Mohan Roy, they portrayed him as a great reformer. Well, we now know the truth about this guy, Ram Mohan Roy. Now, again, I have seen since I was a little kid that Swami Vivekananda has been extolled by India's historians. Now, I am not saying he was bad or anything. I'm not saying that because I have not studied him. I have simply never found him interesting enough to, re- to study his writings. What we know is that he was initially influenced by the Brahmo Samaj, which is Ram Mohan Roy's creation. Then he went into some other aspects of uh, spirituality. He was deeply influenced by Western thought Right? And then he became famous for giving a speech in English in America about Hinduism. I'm sure he had very good intentions and maybe he was a great uh, spiritual leader or, or whatever it is. But I have never found him interesting enough to study him. And I have heard stories that I, I'm, I'm not sure if they are right. I've heard, uh, I've read uh, reports of him consuming meat and advocating that if you travel outside of India, then it's okay to eat certain kinds of meat and all that. So all of these things, if I put together, it has made me very reluctant and very uninterested in studying Swami Vivekananda's life story and his writings and his philosophy and all that. I have never found him interesting enough. I mean, when you talk about Lord Krishna, he is a monumental person, very interesting person. I want to study his whole life, entire life. When it comes to Lord Ram, great person. He achieved so much. He changed the lives of millions of people. Same with Lord Krishna. He changed the entire fortunes of the subcontinent of India. When it comes to somebody like Vardhaman Mahavir, he impacted millions of lives. When you talk about Gautam Buddha, whether you f- agree with Bodha Dharma or not, he is a very significant figure who has touched the lives of millions, hundreds of millions of people worldwide, even today. Right? When you talk about uh, when you talk about Adi Shankara, 
again a monumental figure you know what the achievements are when you talk about ahalya bai holkar we know what a saintly great lady she was we know what her achievements were she touched the lives of millions in a very positive way so when i compare swami vivekananda with, with that i i i am left asking myself what were his achievements and therefore i have never found him interesting enough to study and i have heard that he has criticized the hindu dharma which shows that he also had this reformist mindset now i today if people tell me to study him i am actually afraid to study him because i may find things that i will have to speak about and then people will hate me more so i you know what i just don't find him interesting enough to study that's 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 the real truth just i'm um, telling you honestly and transparently i have never found swami vivekananda interesting enough to study maybe he was great maybe i'm 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 not so maybe i'm not intellectually evolved enough perhaps to find him interesting maybe it is a deficiency in me so everybody has deficiencies it, it could be a deficiency of mine that i don't see the greatness that everybody else sees so if it is that that if that is the case then i accept it as being my deficiency but i don't find him interesting enough i find him having the same traits of trying to reform hinduism as ram mohan roy had and dayanand saraswati had not to that extent but certainly he had some reformist tendencies and when you say you want to reform hinduism you are you are clearly implying that hinduism is inferior and it is broken it needs to be changed why do we need to change this tradition that is more than 10000 years old hinduism doesn't need reforms it needs revival it needs to be unchained it is right now being oppressed and destroyed it just needs to be left alone it needs a revival not reforms that's what i have to say about this now let's take a look at some of the live comments i'll take a few of the live comments okay let me see um hey marathi says do you really think innovation is a must for scientists or astrophysicists science is all about innovation it's about understanding with what we currently don't understand without innovation there is no science no astrophysics no cosmology no theoretical physics there is no advancement in science without innovation if you don't innovate you're just going to teach the same old tired stories so yes we need that we need innovation without innovation there will be no science i can already see some comments about vivekananda ji mm, to be expected okay soft power i have no interest in soft power india needs to increase its hard power good question <laughs> good question see to soft power it doesn't really make any, any real impact in the world unless it is backed up by hard power economic and military power that's what india needs sahil says uh, modi prime minister modi has already announced an indian space association for private players to enter into space programs and work with isro what i am talking about is different what what this thing is going to do is you're going to have lots of private companies that will provide supply spare parts and other components to isro in making satellites and rockets what i am talking about is a new radical startup industry in which companies start building rockets from the ground up so you're creating a private isro which does everything in house that's what i'm talking about that is where the real innovation happens because when you are create let's say you're building a car 
and you are sourcing components from 78 different companies it's going to be a nightmare to integrate that all together all the components need to fit together all the softwares need to talk to each other properly in the same language it's a nightmare but if you build everything in house and if you're a startup with less money then you try to optimize every rupee that you have and you and you try to make everything as optimized as possible that's where the innovation comes from so the indian space association is a welcome step step a very good step but i am talking about something radically different we need to create the right environment for startup entrepreneurship in india right the kind of environment that would that would uh, empower uh, an indian version of elon musk for instance into creating an indian version of spacex hopefully ideally three four different companies like that that compete and collaborate and that is going to be beneficial for the country as a whole that's what we need to look for right do we have anything else how useful are transfers of technologies is what yusnor asks well it depends oh, it depends who is transferring to whom if there is a transfer of technology from spacex to tesla it is essentially an in-house transfer of technology and therefore the transfer of technology is going to be full and complete so for in, for instance you have a transfer of technology from tesla to the to the uh, solar company that elon musk has so tesla is an innovator in manufacturing battery packs lithium iron uh, lithium ion batteries that power the tesla cars so the same technology is also used in the solar company that elon musk has so that transfer of technology is complete and full but when it comes to transfer of military technology military technology from one country to another there's always going to be something that they will hold back first of all it will cost a lot of money let's say we want a transfer of technology jet engine technology from france to india i hear there is something going on some kind of project between the french aerospace company snecma and hindustan aeronautics aeronautics limited the kaveri engine that has been in development for 783 years or something like that so uh some technology transfer will happen maybe we will have a working kaveri engine finally but they will not transfer the best technology it it would it would not be in their interest to do that right so it all depends on who is transferring the technology to whom and also what is the nature of the technology being transferred for instance if the french have been able to perfect miniaturized nuclear reactors for submarines they will never transfer the technology to any other country even a country like india with with whom they have a very strong and very uh, trust trusting uh, strategic alliance they will still not transfer the technology even if you pay any amount of money so it can be useful depending on the context the kind of technology being transferred and the two participants the giver and the taker the seller and the buyer it depends okay my views are about somebody or the other listen um it, it, people don't matter people are not important the the okay let me take up this question where where is it Okay, my views about Rajiv Dikshit ji. Listen, I don't know much about Rajiv Dikshit ji. After I started uh, doing this Q and A sessions, lots of people spoke to me. I mean, they in the comments they have spoken about uh, Mr. Rajiv Dikshit. Uh, so I looked it up, and <clears throat> he is somebody who unfortunately passed away in rather young. And it looks like he was a visionary leader, somebody who had a very good vision for India. He died tragically young. 
so i think he was a very good leader he had very good ideas i believe i have not listened to his speeches his lectures i am very short of time i have to be very 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 selective in what books i read what material i consume i don't have time you know so i i don't know much about about his uh, his uh, <clears throat> his speeches his his writings etc if they may be around but the impression that i get is get is that he was a very patriotic and dedicated person it's it's rather tragic that he passed away so early okay so so yeah that's what i have to say about this i want to merge astrophysics with the ancient indian scriptures which scripture should i start with you cannot merge modern astrophysics with ancient indian scriptures the knowledge that was available to our ancestors 3000 4000 years ago it is nothing like the knowledge we have today they had none of the data that we have today they did not know about cosmic microwave background radiation they did not know cmbr they did not know about gamma ray bursts they did not know about quasars pulsars 99% of the information that we have today was not available to our ancient ancestors so in the scriptures they do talk about concepts like gravitation there are astronomical observations there is a great deal of mathematics that is the foundation of all science today so we had this great philosophical and scientific tradition but you cannot learn astrophysics or merge astrophysics with that ancient indian scriptures were mainly philosophical treatises philosophy with some elements of science with uh, in some cases a lot of science a lot of science in some cases but but you can't mix philosophy and science in the modern context in the 21st century context so you can't try to talk about let's say consciousness and astrophysics because consciousness is not a scientific concept you can't talk about the supreme creator and the law of karma with astrophysics you can't you simply can't astrophysics and science deals with observable phenomena and observable and and physical objects not about spiritual or metaphysical or or philosophical concepts right so i would say that you should definitely study india's ancient scriptures you will learn so much from them they will enrich your life beyond what you can even imagine but you can't merge astrophysics with them it's a separate discipline completely separate discipline right okay okay it's nearly 2 hours i think i will stop now thank you everybody for this wonderful session thank you for all the wonderful questions you keep asking me i got hundreds of brilliant questions i was only able to cover about 25 30 of them today please keep asking me questions i will do my best to cover all of your questions and answer all of them let's keep doing this so tomorrow we will have a live chat session in which i will take live chat questions and let's end it for today i will see you tomorrow lovely talking to you all thank you so much for your support for your viewership i am very very grateful more grateful than you can imagine thank you very much i will see you tomorrow bye